Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, why diet and exercise may be only a short-term solution for the morbidly obese. And that's why we do the operations, because only about 2% of people who are morbidly obese will keep weight off long-term with diet and exercise. Plus, some tips for caring for someone with Alzheimer's. For the caregiver, it's frustrating on their end. They know something's not right, and they know they want to correct their loved one. Kind of live in their world. If that's what they're going to say and that's what they believe, you're not going to change them in the end. And a discussion about the social determinants of health. Gang members exhibited what we have called a behavioral addiction to the excitement of the street. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore what are the social determinants of health and how can we address them. Plus, we'll get tips for caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease. But first, why diet and exercise are just a short-term fix for the morbidly obese. With the many recent advances in the biomedical world, we're learning more and more about the physiological aspects of almost all the tissues and organs in the human body. And one of the most popular topics of discussion has been the question of obesity and its effect on the metabolic changes in the human body. Here with some insight into these changes and how they affect the ability to maintain a healthy body weight is Dr. Howard Simon. He is a professor of surgery and the director of bariatric surgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Simon. Thanks so much for coming in. Good morning. So tell me about weight loss. I mean, weight loss today and the ability to maintain a healthy body weight, it's, it's now seen as more than just a matter of willpower. Explain that. Well, I take care of people who are morbidly obese. Morbidly, morbid obesity is clearly a disease. I don't think there are many serious people in the field that don't, don't believe that. And this old-fashioned concept that um, it's just a matter of willpower, I think, is incorrect. Um, if you tell a patient who's morbidly obese, just lose weight and you know, exercise, eat less, it's like telling a depressed person to cheer up. It you know, doesn't work. So... What do we now know about fat as an endocrine organ and what it does? Because there was, I think there's a new understanding about the role of adipose tissue in the body and what it does to our bodies. Well, there's a whole interconnected physiology of, uh, of morbid obesity. Fat is not the inner organ that we thought it was. It, it does produce certain hormones, as does the GI tract. And there are literally hundreds of complicated interactions that go into this disease of morbid obesity, which makes it very difficult to treat by diet and exercise alone. Moreover, it's also very difficult to treat with any available drugs. So is fat basically, and basically, as you said, it creates certain hormones. There's something called adipokines. Adipokines are specific um, proteins produced by fat tissue, and fat fat metabolism is abnormal in people who become morbidly obese. So basically, that affects their overall body functioning, the fact that they have these adipokines, leptin, various of those actually affect the way their whole metabolism works. Those are two important actors, but there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of more of those. Again, it makes a specific drug therapy by blocking one of these dozens or hundreds of compounds ineffective because the metabolism and your ultimate weight control is really complicated. So, Uh, There was a recent scientific study in the Journal of Obesity, and it was looking at long-term weight loss, people who had participated in the show The Biggest Loser, for example, and found that many had regained the weight they lost. What do you think of that based on this understanding? Well, I think 
people who have done bioheretics have known this for years. And that's why we do the operations, because only about 2% of people who are morbidly obese will keep weight off long-term with diet and exercise. And, and you know, moreover, the, the patients on the show had advantages that most people don't have. They had, you know, full-time dietitians and trainers and got more attention than the average person gets, and yet the majority of them gain their weight back. But there's something very specific that they found or they believe in terms of what happens when you lose a lot of weight in terms of one's metabolism. The theory is is that we, we have a set point. Uh, you can't point to an anatomy book, but it, it's a complicated neurophysiologic mechanism. Our body protects that set point. So what happens to these people is that over time, their metabolism slow down and they need less and less calories. And that's a big part of what happens. And, it, and the reason surgery works, or one of the reasons surgery probably works, is that because of the biochemical changes from the operations, whether it be a gastric bypass or a sleeve, actually probably help to reset that set point. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with bariatric surgeon Dr. Howard Simon. We're talking about the struggles to maintain a healthy body weight after weight loss. So let's talk more about what happens in bariatric surgery then because, as you said, you have someone who's morbidly obese. Their bodies and their metabolisms are not functioning properly or not properly, that the, the adipose tissue alone is creating all of these issues in their metabolism. So how does the surgery then change all that? Well, I think we're at the beginning of the understanding of that. We, we know a lot of things about it. Let me give you an example. If you take animals, um, obese rats, and they, they exist, and you do a gastric bypass on a rat, and you have two groups, one rat you do the gastric bypass on, the other you knock out a particular gene that affects some of these metabolic changes that the gastric bypass changes. And you feed the rats the same amount of food after the bypass, the rats that have the gene knocked out lose half as much weight. So it's not just the calories. It's the metabolism. It's the chemicals being secreted. It's change, helping to change the set point. So it's really very complicated. We like to say, well, you're restricted when you have a bypass or a, um, a sleeve. And that's true. But that's only part of the answer. It's, it's, we don't even call it weight loss surgery anymore. It's really metabolic surgery. And that's the important part. It's these metabolic changes that allow 75 or 80% of people who have baric surgery to keep the weight loss off as opposed to 2 or 3% who don't have an operation. So the people, for the most part, there is a higher percentage, what you're suggesting is, who maintain the weight loss after bariatric surgery than those same morbidly obese patients who may lose it, quote-unquote, naturally through diet and exercise. They are less likely to keep it off. Unfortunately, the vast majority, you know, at least, at least 95, probably closer to 98% of those patients will gain the weight back. Probably 75 to 80% of people after bariatric surgery will keep it off long-term, and that is a metabolic issue and, or, and a restrictive issue with the operation. Does age play a role in this at all? In other words, are teenagers, there was some study that suggested that teenagers do better after that type of intervention than adults? I think that's true. I'm not sure it's a biochemical reason. I think there's more plasticity, plasticity, plasticity. to the way um, their minds work, and they haven't been um, as acclimated as some older people. I, I also find, and I do people in their 60s and 70s, I think it's a little bit harder for some people in their 60s and 70s to change their habits, which is something you have to do. Uh, so you're saying even with bariatric surgery, there have to be certain very s significant changes in the way you approach The operation food. is necessary. It's not sufficient. And where the willpower comes in is, is not that this is a failure of willpower. You need willpower because you need to eat properly. You need to eat nutritiously, and you need to use the tool. You'll feel full with a little bit of food. That doesn't mean you can't eat a little bit more. And the people that change their habits, and that's the majority, do very well. And, and you've also told me at other times when we've chatted, there are people who choose to graze, so to speak, or eat little amounts throughout the day, and those people will gain, I mean small amounts, but excessively throughout the day, those people still may gain their weight back. 
Sure. I think grazing is probably the biggest um, problem we see in the patients who regain weight. And I think it's important to point out they're grazing. When they're eating, they're not really hungry. And the tool will help you to be less hungry, but you need to not ignore the tool. So how about this idea of the change in diabetes? Does that go along? I know with type 2 diabetes, there's a profound change after bariatric surgery in these morbidly obese patients, assuming they've had it, I mean, when they have type 2 diabetes. Help, help us explain, or help explain what you think well, again, is going it, on it, there. It's a function of both weight loss and uh, biochemical effects. Um, if you look at patients who have a gastric bypass, a, a fair number of them go home off their diabetes medicine. Now, clearly that can't be because of weight loss early on. It's because certain hormones in the bowel uh, that make you use your insulin better and help you secrete more insulin, become active. Um, so, you know, we get people with very long-term remissions with bariatric surgery of their diabetes. Well, given the fact that there's the suggestion that once there's a, a profound amount of weight loss that the metabolism slows, how does that affect how you might counsel obviously morbidly obese patients with or without bariatric surgery, and then how does that impact the general population? First start with the well, your, your I, I patients. Well, I morbid obesity is a disease. Now, when, when does a patient go from overweight to obese to morbidly obese? When does it become a disease? I don't think we know the answer to that. We know that 70% of the population is overweight. And my suggestion to overweight people is they need to eat nutritiously, they need to eat mindfully, very few people really concentrate on eating. We're all multitasking. And people need to do exercise, which I define as any activity, physical activity, that you weren't doing before. Healthy people exercise, whether they're overweight or not. But the suggestion here is that if you get to a certain point, such as morbid obesity, what we've been saying is that diet and exercise, mindful eating alone, will not solve the problem. It doesn't work. And that's the whole rationale for doing the operations we do. It, once you become morbidly obese, things that you think on paper or biochemically or um, thermodynamically should work, less calories taken in, more calories burned from exercise, but your brain, your set point adjusts to that, and it makes it very, very difficult and impossible in the vast majority of people who are morbidly obese to lose weight and keep it off. It just it's rare. So what do you basically tell your patients? I mean, what do you say to them both before the surgery and then following the surgery in terms of the most, you know, their ability to be most successful? Well, I, I again, I tell them the operation is necessary, but alone, without behavioral changes, it's not going to work long term. And they need to eat nutritious food and not to eat when they're not hungry, which is much easier after the operation. So would you suggest then shows like The Biggest Loser in a way are kind of steering people down the wrong path based on these findings? Well, I think, and again, I've never, I never watched the show. No, I, no, I no. know about it, but I think the, the problem is, you know, it's a reality show. The, the problem is, is what they're suggesting, no matter how much attention these people get when they're on the reality show, real biochemistry and real physiology kicks in afterwards and they regain the weight the same time the same way that you know you know primary care doctors and, and internists see with their patients they just gain it back after a time but would we say that there is a point and we don't know where in the terms of the amount of extra weight you're carrying where diet and exercise would be sufficient but it's at a certain point that it is no longer sufficient. Right. Is, that, and, is know, that the takeaway in a way? I think it is, and I, I don't know where that point is. I mean, we define morbid obesity in terms of body mass index above 40 or between 35 and 39 if you have type 2 diabetes or sleep apnea or hypertension. And we know in that group of patients, the vast, vast majority of them will not be successful long term, no matter how hard they try, no matter how good their willpower is, without an operation. Just a point of clarification, we use BMI, but a lot of people don't exactly know how that calculation works. Would you say in pounds, where you're talking about, you know, two or 300 pounds over your- Well, I think your... it depends on your height, and that's what the BMI does. Right. The BMI corrects your height for your weight. So let's say you're 300 pounds and you're six feet tall, your BMI is 40, so you're morbidly obese. If you're 300 pounds and you're five feet tall, your BMI is 50, and you're more morbidly obese. This can be calculated very easily. There's charts to do that.
So basically the takeaway is? The takeaway is, is unfortunately, the only therapy that works in the majority of people who are morbidly obese, I just want to emphasize that, is surgery plus behavioral changes. You need the two. And those people generally, for the most part, will do well with that combination. If you look at the numbers, it's probably close to 80%, 75 to 80% will get long-term success. Thanks again for coming in. It's always very, very enlightening and very important information. My guest has been Dr. Howard Simon. He's professor of surgery, and he's the director of bariatric surgery at Upstate Medical University. Next up, tips for caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, today about 15 million people care for a loved one with Alzheimer's in the United States, a role that is difficult and yet rewarding. But knowing what to expect and preparing for the challenges can help people who are caring for those with Alzheimer's live better. Here with more on just how to do that are Kaylin Brainerd and Lynn Nugent, geriatric resource nurses at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having Now this us. is a really big topic and an important topic and I know you both have been working in this field for a while. Let's begin, Kaylin, let's begin by discussing what some of the more common challenges and coping strategies that people can use start with things like changes in communication because it seems to me that's one of the most prominent things that does change when you have someone that you care about who has Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the most prominent. We see it a lot and um, I think of a lot of the changes it's probably the most difficult as Alzheimer's and dementia first sets in. A lot of the patients can kind of hide it at first. You know, they make up little stories that sounds reasonable to hide that, you know what, I just forgot so-and-so's name or I forgot that what I was supposed to do later on. Um, and then as the process continues to take over, you start to see more of like the stuttering. They can't really get what they want to say out. Um, that's both frustrating for the caregiver as well as the individual with the Alzheimer's or dementia. And then they start losing their words. Um, and it really gets to a point where some of them just can't even communicate the whole they become very kind of silent and exactly isolated. the whole communication process just isn't there for them anymore so what do you recommend to people um, I think the biggest I mean, to the thing, caregivers around them right I think the biggest thing is patience at this point um, it's really important that if your loved one is still able to communicate and they're struggling to find those words let them find the words don't finish sentences for them allow them to get what they need to say out um, if you start to see that you know, they're skirting by day by day and they're kind of making up little stories and you're like, you know, I don't really remember her doing that. And it's still the beginning stages of Alzheimer's and they maybe not have been diagnosed with it yet. It's really important to look into that and maybe have a doctor look at them and kind of see if, you know, maybe Alzheimer's is starting to set in. So kind of catching on those little things in the beginning. How about this idea of correcting or criticizing someone? Let's say they say something and it's clearly not right. Right. What, what's the important thing to remember there for the caregiver? For the caregiver, it's frustrating on their end. They know something's not right, and they know they want to correct their loved one. Um, but in general, should they avoid that? They should. They should allow, kind of live in their world. If that's what they're going to say and that's what they believe, you're not going to change them in the end. You know, they're going to continue to believe that because they've forgotten whatever they're trying to say. And basically that idea of arguing with them is kind of so demeaning right. that it's really important to kind of sustain their dignity exactly. through the process. Yes, exactly. So, Lynn, let me talk to you about driving. That's another problem that comes up right away. And, you know, when you notice that someone really doesn't have the ability to be coherent in their thoughts or remember things, that idea of them being behind the wheel can be somewhat frightening. What do you recommend for people in terms of how best to deal with that? I think everything goes back to communication. Um, if you're starting to notice changes with your loved one, you should have those talks immediately. 
make it very honest and open. Um, you're going to want to talk about what do you want to happen if something were to happen. So you're going to want to make sure that you know what their wishes are, especially for end of life. You know what their wishes are um, for what course they want to take. And also you want to establish that they have a accurate healthcare proxy. Once you do those things, you can certainly open that conversation up to driving. I think a lot of older people are resistant to giving up their keys because they don't want to lose that independence. Um, if there is any way that you can open that conversation up and say, you know, if I'm feeling like you're being unsafe, I'm going to take those keys away just because we want you to be safe. So you want to give them that option and kind of make them feel like they're in the decision-making process instead of just going ahead and taking those keys away and not giving them an explanation at all. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you just said about the idea of having that conversation to begin with, you were talking about, in a sense, advanced care planning yes. or the advanced directives as well so that while the person maybe still has their cognitive abilities to understand what mm -hmm. they would want Absolutely. is very important. And I think that was a, that's a key point. And then from the driving standpoint, clearly there are alternatives out there. We don't have a huge amount in our area, but there are some alternative resources for people to know about. There are organizations that will pick people up, and there are also, you know, there's paid transportation. Yep. So, so the upstate geriatricians have a case, case manager that they work with. Um, there is a phone number to get a hold of their office, but that case manager can help to arrange rides for appointments, um, rides for other things as well. And I believe they may have a social worker that works with them, but they do a lot of case management and follow-up. So families we can, can have, tap into that as well. That's a very good suggestion. We'll have a link to the Upstate Geriatrician's Office on our website as well so people can get that information. There are also organizations like FISH, I know of, in, in, the, in the eastern suburbs, um, Friends in Service Helping, who actually are volunteers who will drive seniors <coughs> around. So, so transportation should be something to be taken care of, but mm -hmm. clearly your point about advanced directives and that kind of conversation is very, very essential. How about things like emotional problems, Kaylin? You know, it seems to me that depression is, is classic for the elderly, not every person, but can be. How do you tease out what is depression versus what is the Alzheimer's? It's definitely tough, and it's probably one of the biggest obstacles I think um, healthcare workers have to go through with patients who have dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, what do we generally see in terms of symptoms? Just go through they're that. They're very similar. Alzheimer's symptoms are very similar to depression symptoms. I mean, you're going to lose the communication. The individual is going to be withdrawn. They're not going to want to take part in activities again. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult. And I, I think just the diagnosis of Alzheimer's itself just increases their chance for Alzheimer's or for uh, depression in the beginning anyways that the it biggest thing on it. exactly and it just makes it worse and worse and kind of that snowball effect for the individual if you're just joining us you're listening to upstate's health link on air i'm linda cohen along with geriatric resource nurses kaylin brainerd and lynn nugent and we're talking about strategies for living with someone with alzheimer's disease do you think when it comes to depression it's important to get a formal diagnosis at that time not just of alzheimer's but perhaps what degree is depression so that treatment might follow, proper treatment might follow? I think it's definitely important to get a diagnosis for it. I don't know if so much at what point they are at, um, but there are some medications or different kind of activities that the loved one could do with their individual who has Alzheimer's or dementia that could help potentially bring back the Alzheimer's a little and make their their functional ability. Give um, me give me better. an example of what you're talking about. Uh, a lot of the times we see that the caregivers get a lot of um, stress just on themselves caring for their loved one, and you kind of see that sometimes these individuals just, you know, they stay in the house because it's easy. They know their surrounding; it's predictable, and that adds more depression onto the patient with dementia. Or Alzheimer's. So you're saying the caregiver, in an effort to cope with the difficulty of taking care of someone with Alzheimer's, may keep them in a more isolated environment. Yeah, something that's and that predictable, could, and that could add to that that sense right. of, sense of depression. Yep, and I think it's important to. Um, it's nice to be in that safe area where, where you know what's going to happen, but 
for your loved one, it's really important to try to maintain their routines that they used to do. If they went grocery shopping every Monday, take them grocery shopping every Monday. They might not know what they want to buy. They might not know what they need to buy. But they still remember, I think I did this every week, you know. And there's a sense of stimulation that exactly. perhaps mm -hmm. that might get them even remembering things and feeling a little more um, alert and attentive mm -hmm. than if they are basically, as you said, kind of stuck away somewhere. Right. Yeah, I think routine is extremely important, especially when you're talking about the differences between the dementia and the depression. And we also have something that we call delirium. Um, so the delirium is, it can present itself as confusion, unable to communicate and things like that, but that usually happens very quickly. And that's where we're gonna depend on the health or on the caregivers to let us know if these symptoms have been a long time coming or if it's been very short time coming, because that will also help with the diagnosis and the treatments for those. So if you notice that your loved one is confused and getting more confused gradually that might be a little bit different than what would what we would do if the patient was confused and got confused extremely quickly um, the delirium can be fixed with routine with medications with treatments um, whereas the dementia is going to be gradual that's a very good point mm -hmm. and I think you must see that in the hospital where a patient um, who changes their environment dramatically and perhaps has some other illness may experience what you call delirium. Yes. They, they really get very disoriented and then some of these other more extreme behaviors show. So I think it's really important for caregivers to be on the lookout for those kinds of changes and to let healthcare workers help them mm -hmm. wherever possible. But there are medications that can help with the depression that might be overlaying the Alzheimer's is and have you seen that work we have um, the other thing is we focus on psychosocial treatments as well um, making sure that your loved one is able to go and do their favorite things or see their favorite people if there's a best friend that they they see or they like to talk to you know you should be encouraged them to talk to that person whether it's on the phone or have you know face-to-face -face meetings every once in a while and even if their communication isn't exactly making sense it's nice for them to still have that social aspect um, I know that we've learned in our geriatric resource nurse course that meal times a lot of times are the loneliest time for an older adult, especially someone who has um, dementia uh, in the beginning stages because they may be living at home preparing their meals by themselves at that point, but they're used to having family there. They're used to having their kids or their spouse there and now they're alone eating, eating by themselves and that's a hard thing for them to do and that causes a lot of loneliness which could cause depression. So in a sense what you're saying is keeping someone with Alzheimer's in as much of a social environment that is possible and mm -hmm. where they're, they have some degree of routine and they know that they're going to be doing some familiar activities with familiar faces is really a very important support Absolutely. for those people and also it strikes me that also helps the caregiver in a sense because the caregiver doesn't have all of that responsibility single-handedly on their shoulders right. and that's where different kinds of organizations whether it be a day program for people with Alzheimer's or even sometimes assisted living environments mm -hmm. can provide more of that social environment. How about some of the difficult behaviors we see with a uh, people with Alzheimer's and the little bit of time we have left, what do you recommend for things like when someone is very highly agitated or s seems paranoid or even takes off and wanders? And, um, and you can comment on any of those. I think with the communication you're going to want to, like Kaylin said, live in their world. So if their spouse has died and they woke up that morning thinking that their spouse is still alive, you shouldn't argue with them and tell them, no, you know, dad's died he's been dead for a year you know you shouldn't argue with them you should just go along with it and say yes you know let's see if we can maybe he went to the grocery store maybe he went to the stool tool shop and things like that and by the time they say okay well maybe he did go out for a while they'll forget in a few minutes that he may not be there so you shouldn't argue with them you should absolutely just go along with with um 
what they're saying at that time because it can change minute to minute. And the idea is that you try to kind of help the, with the agitation in mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. How about things like wandering in the very little bit of time we have left? Wandering's definitely tough also. Um, they don't know where they're going. They don't know why they were going there or if they did have a destination that they wanted to put themselves in. They remember it for a little bit and then kind of forget. The best thing is to just know... If they're in the house with you, keep locks on the doors. Um, so you really do have to monitor yeah, very it's, carefully. Yeah, it's almost like, not to refer them back to it, but it's like they've gone back to like a toddler stage. You really need to watch where they are. Make your home environment safe for them again. Well, that's very good advice. We'll have some of those links to some of the resources that you suggested on our website. And I want to thank you both for coming in. It's a very challenging thing, but I think one of the things we want to underscore is that caregivers need to care for themselves too. Absolutely. And people really seem to forget that a lot mm -hmm. because it's a very, very onerous and at the same time rewarding situation. My guests have been Kaylin Brainerd and Lynn Nugin. They're geriatric resource nurses at Upstate Medical University. Once again, thanks for coming in. Thanks I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. One plus one equals minus 49, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, folks, after the disturbed man with a small machine gun killed at least 49 people he hated in Orlando, the impassioned debate about the right to bear arms versus gun control has exploded again. Here are a few facts, including some from the perspective of psychological and behavioral science, for you to consider. In the United States, roughly 8,000 people a year are killed in gun homicides with an overall death rate of about 31 per million people or about 27 people a day. This is significantly more than in all other advanced countries. For example, in Greece, Canada, and Ireland, the rate is about 4 to 5 per million. In Germany, Austria, and Spain, about two per million. Mass murder shooters often study what previous mass murderers have done and mimic their actions, including sometimes using the same overall approach and choice of weapons. Most murders are committed by someone who becomes enraged and kills a single person and never murders another person. Very often, these victims are spouses or relatives of the murderer. The majority of all murders are committed by people under the influence of alcohol or drugs. From a behavioral science point of view, there is no reliable way to predict in advance who will become a murderer. While people with certain mental health diagnoses are slightly more likely than people without these diagnoses to murder, most murders are committed by people without any diagnosis. Does owning a gun protect us? The best data I have seen are that someone who owns a gun is more than 20 times more likely to be killed with a gun than someone without one. That includes both homicides and suicides. And people who own a gun are much more likely to succeed in killing themselves than those who use other means. A stream of experimental behavioral research shows that the mere presence of a gun in a situation increases the likelihood of aggressive actions, such as giving other study participants more painful electric shocks, or driving more aggressively. This is called the weapons effect. While no doubt this debate will continue, as a behavioral scientist, I'd suggest funding more research to find more facts that can help reduce the violence and emotional trauma. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
Coming up next, what are the social determinants of health? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, efforts to improve health in the United States have traditionally looked at the health care system as the key driver of health and health outcomes. The Affordable Care Act has increased opportunities to improve health by expanding access to health coverage. However, while increasing access to health care is important, Research has shown that improving population health and achieving health equity really require broader approaches that will also address social, economic, and environmental factors that influence health. Here to help us better understand what these factors are and what can be done about them are Dr. Sandra Lane. She is a public health professor at the Falk College of Syracuse University and Arnett Haygood L., Associate Director for Street Addictions Institute of Syracuse. Thank you so much for coming in. Welcome Thank to you, you both. Thank you. Dr. Lane, let me start with you because you both of you have been doing a lot of research in this area. We know that there are many factors that affect the health of individuals and communities. And though in America we've spent our healthcare expenditures are in like three trillion, they're projected to be really astronomical. The outcomes in the United States continue to fall behind many developed countries. What, in your estimate at this point, are the crucial factors that really do de- determine health? Well, first of all, health care is very, very important. And we're fortunate to have really great health care institutions in Syracuse. And Upstate is, is definitely among the most important. Um, but you can have people who live within a mile of major hospitals all over the world and are dying from preventable causes. Partially, we think it's because people didn't have access to health care. And as you said, the Affordable, Care Era, the Affordable Care Act has begun to change that situation. But if you live in a neighborhood in which the houses have lead poisoning, have lead in them and children are lead poisoned, if you live in a neighborhood in which it's violent, like many in Syracuse, and there's gunshots around your house, around your school every day, that even if you're not injured by a gunshot, that's going to, to result in some psychological trauma. Um, or you if, may not want to go outside. If you, your, <laughs> mother may, your mother may not want you to go outside, so that increases obesity. Um, we have neighborhoods in Syracuse that have food deserts where you cannot purchase healthy food. Fresh um, food of Fresh any kind. food, yes. Um, and there's, there's other situations like that. Some, some individuals are, uh, have other exposures to toxics, toxins. Um, but I would say that food, air, water, all the things that actually uh, Hippocrates knew about 450 BCE. So we are, basically what you're saying is that it, it, obviously some of the determinants or the social determinants really have a strong impact, a stronger impact on health than even perhaps disease entities because they lead to the development of many of these kind of diseases. Um, Arnett, tell us about you know your view of the social determinants within the community. Well, um... Like Dr. Lane said, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, neighborhoods are kind of toxic when it comes to uh, the, the the violence. Um, and not just here in Syracuse, but in, in ur- other urban centers abroad. Um, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think that, you know, the police see themselves as part of the health system or landlords see themselves as a part of the health system. Um, and this is it's very important. You have to understand that uh, a lot of disease come from stress, right, and stress-related issues. And uh, if we can, if we can eliminate that or, or try to work on that, but that's not the the issue in this country. We look at 
uh, violence as as a behavioral issue, not a not an issue of of a mind disease. Um, in our research, we found that um, people are drawn to the violence, or or the violence has uh, traumatized the the community as a whole, the police departments, the landlords, uh, city government, education. Whereas you know. Uh, Landlords are dealing with certain things because of the issue, the mental issues of the tenants or the renters. Uh, the police are dealing with issues in the neighborhood because children have grown up in this in this climax of violence where they had normalized, where they're where, had, where they're are uh, desensitized to the violence and have normalized the violence abnormal. So what you're saying is one of the things I guess I came across in looking at some of these issues myself was that a lot of the health behaviors like smoking, diet, lack of exercise are very important determinants of what we call premature death or poor health. And what I hear Arnett saying is that a lot of that grows out of an environment Absolutely. that at this point is unhealthy. For, for the and there's even determinants of those behaviors. For example, uh, children are more likely to smoke cigarettes if they live in neighborhoods where the, the corner so stores sell loose cigarettes. They're called Lucy's. They sell them one at a time for 50 cents each. And if you have a certain number of cigarettes before you're 18, because of brain development, you are much more likely to become addicted. Exactly. And you're more likely to become addicted if you have access to cigarettes. So we, one of our studies also demonstrated that there is a link with lead poisoning of children and subsequent uh, use of tobacco. Now that has to be studied a bit more. It's, uh, I, don't, I think we're the only ones who found that. But it makes sense because uh, lead poisoning in childhood um, causes in many of the children as they grow up uh, more risk-taking behavior um, and so lower. So you're suggesting that there's actual yeah. brain damage happening oh, absolutely. during the very formative years. It's not just um, it, it's not just lowered learning ability for math and 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 reading, which is terribly important but it's lowered executive function, and that's well uh, understood. So judgment, decision-making, yes. analytic yep. abilities. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with health researchers, Dr. Sandra Lane and Arnett Haygood-L. And we're talking about the social determinants of health. So we know basically that um, all of this, the, the actually I read somewhere that Basically, the, the issues of, of poor education, racial segregation, the fact of poverty can account, I said, to over one-third of the total deaths in the United States in a given year. Right. And the likelihood of premature death increases as income goes down. Yep. So basically what you're saying is we can't just look at health in isolation. We have to look at it within an environment. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you were talking about. Uh, Arnett, tell us a little bit more about this, how the culture of violence, as you said, is addictive, as you were describing earlier. And how, in what way is it addictive? Well, um, we, uh, in, our, in our research, we did a, uh, what we call trauma map, where we mapped um, all the gunshots in Syracuse, uh, data from the Syracuse Police Department, um, and we mapped all the gunshots. And as you see the map, there are clusters, what we call gunshot clusters, right? So areas where the violence is higher. Yes. And as we overlay the maps where all the elementary schools are, the air, all the, the 13 elementary schools, nine of them fall into that cluster. Well, that suggests right there, Dr. So Lane, in the elementary schools in the gunshot clusters, reading and math scores in the third grade are half as high, they're 50% lower, and school suspensions, even in elementary schools, are twice as high. But also, um, Arnett and his colleague um, Noble, Timothy Jennings Bay, with uh, Dessa Bergensico and myself, uh, faculty members at Syracuse, um, did a, a study of former gang members and it was an interview study, and uh, the gang members exhibited uh, what we have called a behavioral addiction to the excitement of the street. Two factors. One is that 
um, the excitement of the street, even seeing a gun, gives rise to a little hit of uh, adrenaline. And at the same time, many of the individuals come from dysfunctional families and they have intense bonding with their mates in the street culture. And those two things, we published it now, it's accepted now as a behavioral addiction. So in fact, the, the fact that these young people are exposed to this kind of violence early mm -hmm. on really affects not only their future behavior, but also their health. Because as we said, often there's premature death from mm -hmm. violence, but then the, the impact is larger. And I think that's what you were implying, Absolutely. Arnett, that it has an impact on the community and all the members of community. Absolutely. For example, if there are no playgrounds or if they're afraid to go out and play because of gun violence Absolutely. or this kind of thing, the issue of diabetes or obesity, therefore diabetes, all of those kind of health issues arise. Absolutely. Am I correct? Absolutely. Uh, so basically, Dr. Lane, the question then is, what can be done? And is it important to look at health through the lens of the social determinants and all of the economic um, and, you know, and social issues that are really creating this very toxic environment? Well, I was asked by the Institute of Medicine to chair a committee on integrating the social determinants of health into health edu into education for health professionals. And that report is now out published by the National Academies of Press, uh, National Academy of Press, sorry. And um, I know that the uh, deans of the medical school at Upstate and, and the dean of the School of Health Professions and our chancellor at Syracuse University, my dean in Folk College, are all very interested in working together on trying to um, have uh, faculty and students at all of our institutions uh, learn more about the social determinants of health and learn how they can make a difference. Because it key, it, that's one obviously very important step to educate those healthcare providers or the healthcare provider educators mm -hmm. of the next generation of physicians, mid-level mid uh, PAs, NPs, all of that, who are going out and interfacing with the community to be apprised of what are the factors that play a role, but I guess in the little bit of time we have left, what do you think could be done to really make a difference? Actually, um, it's not just, we have to go beyond, remember we, we were talking about not just um, taking this and putting it in the health perspective, we have to start looking at, looking at it through the lens of trauma, mm -hmm. right? So again, when I said that the community is under this canopy of trauma, we have to make the, <clears throat> other institutions aware, police departments, teachers, housing, uh, authorities. housing authorities, city governments. Um, they have to be aware of the problem so they can address the problem accordingly. You know what I mean? Um, and, and deal with the issue, right, of not just this being a behavior, right, but what led to the behavior, right? Social services, right? They need to understand and be aware of and look through things through what I like to call the trauma, the trauma lens. Go ahead, Doctor. Uh, one of the things I wanted uh, Arnett to talk about is the fact that right now there's ongoing work with the Street Addiction Institute. Um, they are they're not waiting for anything to to work. They've been. Uh, conducting uh, activities with, in conjunction with the police, uh, with the school district, with Destiny Mall, um, together with Syracuse University. We've written now, I think, seven grants. Uh, two have been funded so far. To what end? Just briefly, we have only a little bit of time left. To do what? To kind of, um, well, we have like a twofold mission that's written into our mission in the Institute is kind of to train the trainers in that, and at the same time, um, be a be a liaison between uh, certain institutions or certain organizations and, and the community to help inform all the goals. Absolutely, to help inform people of why are people acting this way, um, and we also know that behavior is is a driver in, in social determinants of health. There's so much more we could talk about. Unfortunately, we run out of time. But I thank you both for coming in and helping really inform all of our listening audience about the very important work that you're doing. My guests have been um, 
Sandra, Dr. Sandra Lane, and she is a professor of public health at the Fall College at Syracuse University, and Arnett Haygood L., who's the associate director for the Street Addictions Institute of Syracuse, New York. Thank you both so much Thank for you. coming. Thank in. you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Serious illness can turn our worlds upside down and inside out. Poetry uses concise images to have that same effect on us. Pennsylvania poet Mary Arguelles creates a somewhat odd image in the title of her poem and then proceeds to turn our expectation upside down. Here is Men Carrying Purses. From a warren of exam rooms, they emerge to collect in waiting rooms while their wives lag behind for further consultation, evaluation, evacuation of blood from their veins. Like seeing eye dogs, the purses guide them to their chairs where they sit on edge, the purses dangling from their leashes waiting for the command, heal, sit, stay. But no commands are forthcoming. The men are lost and rattled, their commands swallowed whole. Their wives' sweaters dangle from their arms. They trail pink ribbons. They hold things. They wait. They wait and they hold things, calling on and counting on chivalry to carry the day. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we review the essentials of successful breastfeeding. We'll also learn about new systemic treatments for prostate cancer, and we'll visit with a physician whose passion is curating his collection of historical medical images. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.